Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to Director of Sports Science at PUSH and Strength and Conditioning Consultant, Chris Chapman. Thanks for tuning in to the Pacey Performance Podcast. So this evening, I have the absolute pleasure in speaking to Chris Chapman. So welcome to the podcast, Chris. Ah, Thanks for having me, Rob. I uh, appreciate it. It's a big fan of the show, and it's great to be a part of it. Pleasure, mate. It's great to have you. So anyone that doesn't know who you are, just want to give us a a run-through of your background, um, maybe your education and what you're currently doing. Totally, for sure. Um, So right now, I have a few different roles. Uh, after the Rio Olympics, I decided to step away from full-time coaching, and uh, since then I've been prim- primarily working as a sports scientist and the resident strength coach for a sport technology company called Push. Um, most people would be familiar with them uh, because of their product, the Push Band, which measures velocity and power in the weight room. But aside from that, I do still coach and consult with two Canadian national teams, trampoline and freestyle ski. And I work privately with a company called Paddle Monster, which um, it's a collection of coaches from around the world uh, who are focused on training athletes for racing in stand-up paddle boards, surf ski kayak, and outrigger canoe, some, some uh, uh, less-known water sports, that is. But uh, as far as my background goes, you know, one thing I love is uh, hearing stories of how coaches got to where they are and the journey they took and the people who influenced them. Um, so I'd love to take a few minutes and just give you the Coles Notes version of my story, um, sharing the, the parts that I love. So like a, lot of, like a lot of strength coaches I've met, my goal originally as a kid was to be a professional athlete. That was the dream. Um, I wanted to play sports for a living. However, I learned pretty early on that that wasn't in the cards. Um, growing up, I played a lot of different sports, but I never specialized. So I was good at a lot of things, but not great at anything. You know, the jack-of-all-trades, master of none. Uh, but I knew I still wanted to be involved with sport, and I wanted a career supporting athletes, even though I couldn't be one. So the upside of this was that I got to put my focus into my career at a rather early age. And this led me to um, choose to do my undergrad in kinesiology. Uh, I went to a school called McMaster in Hamilton, Canada, where I focused on, I'd say, two main streams of learning. Um, you know, the first was athletic therapy, which in other countries is more known as athletic training or sports therapy. And uh, I feel like this was a great base for SNC because it gave me a fundamental understanding of injury causation, uh, rehabilitation, and gave me a lot of hands-on hours early on as a member of an athlete support team. And then the other stream I focused on was physiology, which is probably more uh, what McMaster is known for. You know, I was very fortunate to have some amazing influences um, You know, guys like Dr. Digby Sale, the neurophysiologist, as a main professor. Um, Him and his grad student, John Fowles, was one of the first to show the benefits of intended maximal concentric accelerations, which uh, is the cornerstone of what we know as velocity-based training today. 
And, uh, you know, I wrote my thesis under Dr. Steve Phillips, diving into the exercise metabolism and protein synthesis world. So I had a lot of great professor influences that gave me good fundamental knowledge. But I'd say it was a gentleman by the name of Steve Lidstone, uh, who was the biggest influence on me during my time there. Um, you know, I was at this crossroads. Do I go into grad school in physio? Do I go into physiology? I wasn't too confident as I liked them both, but one thing I knew is that I was a gym rat. And at the time in Canada, there weren't a lot of strength coaches uh, working full-time in Canadian universities. But uh, McMasteridge hired Steve for the role, and I decided to go to his first talk where he discussed you know, his goals, his program, what he wanted to build. And that was kind of the moment where I was sold on the profession, and I knew this is what I wanted to do. Um, I could combine my love for the gym with my goal of supporting athletes and being around sport. So from that moment, I stuck to Steve like glue. I became an intern and then became an assistant strength coach at the university and learned as much as I could from him. Uh, he was my first true mentor in the field, and I definitely owe my career to him. He opened a lot of doors for me, uh, brought me into the Hockey Canada world and the Basketball Canada world, where I spent numerous years training in their national programs with. Um, so I think part of that is just uh, the value of a mentor and someone to look up to, someone who's been in the field a long time, who can show you things and open doors and open your mind. Um, I think it's it's priceless experience. And then I'd say the, the second chapter, the next chapter, would be um, flying the coop, you know, leaving Steve, leaving McMaster, uh, making my first foray on my own. I moved to Toronto and... Um, started doing things on my own and had to pay the bills so did personal training for a while and then got a job as a strength coach in a sports high school working on all ages and stages and uh, during this time I had been training with uh, Trampoline Canada and another door Steve opened for me was uh, he was the strength coach athletic therapist for the team and when it came time for him to pass them on he passed them on to me the guy he trusted who is assistant forever and that was kind of how I got into the Canadian Sport Institute. And then from there, they had liked the work I'd done. And uh, I got hired full time and spent two full quads eight years working at the Sport Institute with a variety of sports, um, you know, primarily on the summer side with canoe, kayak, and trampoline, a um, little bit of cycling and helping out with team sports. And then on the winter side, uh, ice hockey, figure skating, and freestyle ski. And then I uh, worked my way up to being the head strength coach at the Institute in Toronto. And that kind of brings me to the Rio Olympics and where we are today. Cool. So one thing that we chatted about beforehand was your kind of expertise in uh, concurrent training. And one thing that I'd run past you, which I'd love for you to um, to get on air, was the, the kind of theory versus the practice side of, of concurrent training. Um, so if you want to just, just kind of communicate that on, on air, how we did kind of beforehand, that'd be, that'd be superb. Totally. So, um, I mean, you could take it back to the, the original research by Hickson in the eighties. I think he was one of the first to show that, um, you know, you do a strength session before an endurance session and there's minimal negative effects on the endurance, uh, training session. However, if you flip-flop them and put the endurance first, uh, it has a large effect on the outcomes of the strength session. And then from there, um, you start digging into the literature and you can 
get into the reasons why there's all kinds, um, neural fatigue, uh, fiber type transformations, and you start getting into the weeds of all this uh, cell signaling and microbiology, um, which is great in theory, but when it comes to the applied side, I think there's definitely uh, a lot more practical ways. And so what we tried to do is was take as much theory as possible and try these things out over two cycles and see what worked and what didn't. Um, you know, if you want to dig into the weeds on the cell pathway stuff, I'd suggest some good papers by Keith Barr, Gustavo Nader, and John Hawley on the subject. But um, I really like a lot of the work that the Spanish groups have done, like Garcia Polares and Izquierdo, pardon my uh, Spanish pronunciations. <laughs> but these guys have done some amazing work in uh, whether you want to call it applied sports science, where they've taken their Olympic kayakers, they've taken their, their top-level Spanish rowers, and they've actually put these guys through various models of concurrent training, tapering, um, periodization programs, and uh, seeing what the actual outcomes are. Um, for example, the, they did one study where they had their Olympic kayakers do a, a traditional periodization model, linear periodization versus a block periodization where they're focusing on one trade each block and uh, they actually did this crossover study and what they found was that the block training had uh, greater or equal outcomes in boat speed, in uh, stroke rates, in power outputs, but the block group did 120 hours less training throughout the study. Um, so that's massive. If you can get greater or equal gains for less time input, um, that can have huge outcomes on the back end as far as recovery and fitting in more technical training, so on and so on. So you're basically giving the athletes time back. Um, so for, I think from my, from my point of view, the thing that I would be asking would be how much difference does it actually make? And the reason I ask that is the previous people that I've had in the podcast who have been in um, maybe Olympic sports and even quite high-level, well, very high-level guys – are still been shipped around certain cities because of um, facilities, facility availability, where different athletes, different training partners are. And I'm guessing that, and this is me guessing what their kind of uh, their routine may be. These principles aren't been stuck to because of logistical situations. So how much difference does that actually make with regards to concurrent training? Um. Well, I actually think it makes a pretty big difference because, yeah. uh, you know, I can give some, uh, an example. My colleague, Darren Steves, uh, you know, he was a little more focused on our sprint paddlers. He would do, um, we had an indicator lift, eight, eight, um, maximum bench pulls. So on a prone row, um, at 80 kilos as fast as you can. And we would look at velocity and power and we would do this, um, before an endurance session, so if we did our weights first, and they could get about six, seven, eight sets in before we saw a 20% velocity loss. Um, if we did it after the on-water training session with the paddlers, they could only get about four sets in before that loss, and the loss was much greater. So they'd go from about 10,000 watts down to 8,000, um, and that drop-off was really quick, whereas with doing it before practice, um, after about five, six, seven sets, they were still producing more watts 
than the second set of the after practice group. So um, we did our own little experiments using uh, the Tendo to to see within our population if it made a difference. And with that, we could take that back to the coach and say, look, um, you know, if you want to maximize what little time we have in the gym, it's more important to be doing this work before we go on water. Um, and for the most part, the coaches uh, adjusted their schedule to fit it. And, you know, maybe we're fortunate in that we could get in the gyms during those times and we could get on the water during those times. Um, but uh, it definitely, you need it to maximize your, your outcomes. Mm -hmm. So there's another thing that we chatted about before, and that was train to failure. And I know that this kind of kind of fits in with this with this topic quite nicely, and I know you had some some nice little anecdotes for for that um, for that specific topic. So, with regards to training to failure, what's your view on that, and why is it like what what why is your view your view what's what's the experience you've had with regards to that? Yeah, so I'd say I first came across the concept reading Dan John's book Easy Strength uh, some time ago, and uh, trying it on myself, it was something. You know, I liked because I was feeling good every day. Um, and I'd say the way we've kind of figured out a model. So we were trying, what we find is because of the amount of volume that uh, the paddlers would do on water, especially in season. You know, in Canada, we can't really paddle on ice. So we take some time <laughs> off in the winter and just focus on gym work. We do some cross-country skiing. We do some swimming to build base aerobic. And... It was during that time where coach definitely let me have the weight sessions first um, to really focus on the gym stuff. And given the endurance qualities were um, uh, non-sport specific, it was okay that we weren't focusing on technical. Um, but once it came to in-season, uh, the guys really ramped up on water and we'd find that strength would decrease and power would decrease throughout the season. And we'd be struggling in the off-season to get back up. And so one of the ways that we thought um, maybe we could uh, um, minimize this loss is this not to failure concept. And again, it was another study by um, Izquierdo, that Spanish group. Um, they took two groups of their, their Spanish rowers and they put them through a weight program. One group did training to failure and one group did training not to failure. Um, using the same exercises and what they found was that the group that didn't train to failure had constant gains each week over a eight week 12 week cycle and then what they also showed is because they were training on water at the same time um, their wattage on an ergometer for 10 strokes and their 20 minute output also increased greater in this not to failure group so speculating on it, it makes sense. You know, if you're not taking a guy to failure in the gym, you're not taking him to full fatigue, you know, you're going to have less DOMS, a lot less uh, the residual interference for next day's training. Um, the athlete's going to be more fresh when they get in the water on the boat. So by pairing back in the gym, and I always tell my athletes, leaving two in the tank, leaving four in the tank, um, you know, that's the easiest practical way for them to understand it. It actually worked very well, and what we'd see is not only could we maintain the qualities we built in the off-season, we could maintain our strength ratios. Um, we'd see them actually go up because they would maintain, but then they would lose mass as their paddling increased. So strength ratios would go up, their power would maintain, and then 
as we go through season, next year we can keep building. And we actually got to a point where we dialed in our model so well that guys were making gains in season, which I actually never thought I would see. So, um, you know, it shows the importance of testing before and after each block to see if the intervention you're doing actually made a change in the qualities you're looking for. Um, and for us, the, the not to failure was one of the biggest ones that, you know, throughout my eight years with uh, Canoe Kayak that had a large impact. How did the, how did the athletes feel about the, the change? Was there a bit of resistance? Or were they um, happy, to, happy to go with it? I'd say, if anything, there, it was about changing the culture. Now, paddling is a sport where the coaches are very well-versed in, in strength conditioning. It's definitely a part of the sport and the culture. Um, so there there's definitely some historical uh, resistance to change as far as the programming goes. But I'd say by that time, I had pretty good buy-in. Um, you know, one of the things I did early on, it's a good story here, is, um, you know, Coach Scott Oldershaw, who's one of the most successful paddling coaches of our generation, how I got involved was he had kind of hit his limit of his knowledge, and he asked the Sport Institute at the time for some help. So uh, I needed another sport on my plate, and this was, I don't know, 2008, 2009, and it got assigned to me. So I show up, I walk into this program that, you know, perennial uh, medal winners, world championships, Olympics, and I basically sat back and observed. Um, I saw what they did, I saw what they did well, I saw what worked, and it was more about finding easy wins and finding meaningful wins as opposed to just dumping what I thought was best in my model on them. So from early on, I focused on getting buy-in from the coach and the athletes, uh, gaining trust. So when it came time to try something like this, um, you know, the athletes were pretty on board. And I would say as time went on, um, they actually felt really good not training to failure. We would throw it in there every now and then, just from a, a mental fortitude standpoint. I think training to failure has merit in two areas. Um, one is being able to push yourself, you know, really hard, seeing what you can do, um, seeing if you can outdo, do yourself a PR, um, just kind of that mental fight, that grind. And then the second would be more, uh, hypertrophy, you know, training to failure and looking at, um, you know, Henneman's principle, 100% motor unit activation, fast twitch are more likely to hypertrophy and going down that whole, uh, muscle metabolism road. So there is merit in it, but again, I think the athletes, once they got it, they were feeling better on the water, and then there was no problem getting a buy-in from anyone else on that. No, sounds good. So one thing I want to touch on is your, I think you've mentioned it a couple of times, you work with the trampolining. Yes. And that's, it's something that's obviously very unique. Um, it's something that I've not really discussed on the on the podcast to anyone else, which is which is great. Um, but obviously, with there being an aesthetic aspect to the to the sport, it'd be just really, really interesting to hear from you in how you took that aspect of the of trampoline and, and integrated it within well everything the guys did, guys and girls did. For sure, yeah, trampoline is an interesting one. Um... When I started with the sport, I didn't even know what it was, so I had to learn it from scratch, which I think in general is a great process for any coach to go through. 
um, I tend to take an ergonomic approach to physical preparation. You know, simply put, uh, what are the demands of the sport, and does the athlete have the capacities or qualities to meet the, or exceed those demands? And since most people don't know the sport, in brief, uh, Olympic trampoline involves two separate 10 jump routines. A single jump is about seven to nine meters in height, and the athlete sustains eight to 10 Gs upon landing. Um, a routine is about 30 seconds long, so approximate physiological equivalent of a 200 meter sprint, I'd say. Um, and then each routine is scored on three criteria. So the first being degree of difficulty. So how hard are the tricks the athlete's doing each jump? Uh, the second would be execution. So how well they perform each trick. And then the third would be time of flight, which is the only objectively measured uh, metric, which is the amount of time they spend in the air. Now, while most of my work is done to maximize flight time, because of the judged components, um, we did attempt to optimize aesthetics as much as possible. Um, trampoline is judged from a side or lateral view of the athlete. So one thing is they can lose points on execution if they don't hold straight lines. So straight lines matter. And some of these athletes don't have the best natural postures, um, being gymnasts, and uh, it could affect the judge's perception of the straight line. So posture qualities that we saw a lot of, like forward head or sway back, um, the more common ones I dealt with, could, could be detrimental to the actual athlete performance resulting in deductions. So we would spend time working on these. Now, uh, I'd say I've subscribed to the movement as a behavior paradigm and I've been heavily influenced by my graduate supervisor Tyson Beach in this area in that we should stop being uh, so reductionistic in our approach to movement and focus on shaping the behavior we wish to see. So in the gym focus on reinforcing that good head position or that good hip posture in the athletes and then what you do is you try and disrupt it with training. So by varying the movement tasks in the gym, by adding load, adding velocity, adding perturbations, um, find the limits of where the athlete cannot maintain the desired behavior, so that good head position or good hip posture. And then from there, we want to build the capacity and skill around these limits in order to create a, a robustness, a robustness in their movement. So in theory, by doing that, we're creating... Um, say, more so solutions to the movement problem, more variability in the solutions, while maintaining those desired qualities. And I think the ultimate goal for me was to get to a point where the desired behavior uh, happens subconsciously during the performance, so that for the trampolinists, they maintain that good head position or that good hip posture, that nice straight line during our gym work when it matters and during the subsequent on-trampoline performance when it matters and they don't have to think about it or focus on it. So if that kind of makes sense. And one, one thing you mentioned beforehand, and, and that was bodybuilding, yes, bodybuilding sir. techniques to enhance that aesthetic um, image of the guys. What Can you just give, give us a bit of a, an expansion on that and maybe what, what was involved in that? For sure. Now, uh, I'd say bodybuilding came into play in two facets. Um, first, if you look into the literature, we know that humans perceive symmetry as being more attractive. And 
being a judge sport, uh, a more attractive body could potentially score a higher score um, with the judges. So a tertiary goal for us was to make athletes symmetrical, uh, visually anyways. So one thing we would do is we would look at left to right anthropometrics. Um, we use segmental volumes and GERS. And if there was big asymmetries, we would try to bring these numbers closer together um, through some isolated training or classic bodybuilding, um, you know, machine-based joint isolation movements. Um, but I'd say more importantly than that, uh, a secondary goal for us was to optimize the body mass and composition. Um, in general, mass was something we had to manipulate because we know flight time uh, was, is highly correlated to an athlete's mass. Um, greater mass can deflect the bed more, so propulsing the athlete higher, but greater mass works against the athlete in the air. Um, we can't change that. So we had to find the sweet spot of figuring out the optimal mass in relation to flight times. Um, first, we had to determine if the athlete needed to gain or lose mass, and then we had to make sure that any gains or loss in mass was as functional as possible. So does this athlete need to increase muscle, which could help force production? Um, so we need to put it on, you know, in areas that are useful to the athlete. So in the legs, which help them jump. Or does this athlete need to decrease their adipose tissue, optimize their composition, um, and remove what could be considered dead weight, which is going to pull them down in the air? So these are more the types of things that we tended to look at uh, into relation to bodybuilding, per se. Just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Chris. I hope you enjoyed part one. So it was great to get Chris on. Um, Chris definitely goes under the radar um, on social media and other kind of outlets, but such a good guy, such a switched on guy. Um, so more coming in part two. So in part two, we're going to discuss uh, all things biomechanics and given Chris's current role, uh, or one of Chris's current roles as Director of Sports Science at PUSH, it would be rude not to tap into his knowledge about velocity-based training uh, and the future of uh, tech in the weight room. So I just want to recognize uh, the two sponsors who are sponsoring the episode today. So as always, Valve Performance, makers of the Nordboard and Grindbar, and also Coach Me Plus for sponsoring the episode today. So massive thanks to both them guys for their continued support to allow the podcast to carry on in its current form. So just going to get into part two now. Hope you enjoy and I will speak to you soon. So obviously biomechanics been a, also been a big part of that. Can you just give us a little bit of background on your, maybe your background in, in biomechanics and how that has how that's influenced what you've done over the years and and maybe where that that kind of background fits into the whole performance program? Sure thing. I think this is where my interests lie these days. And um, So I went back to school uh, in 2012 and did my graduate work in quantitative biomechanics. And kind of what led me there, you know, in the, the mid-2000s, uh, is heavily influenced by, you know, the functional training, that was the hot thing at the time, um, you know, definitely reading a lot of Mike Boyle stuff, um, and being an, trained as an athletic therapist first, you know, doing a lot of functional movement screening and observing movement, but the one thing I noticed was everyone was talking about movement, everyone was observing movement, but no one was measuring movement, 
And it kind of puzzled me because I couldn't explain some of the things I was seeing. And then some of the, the screening I was doing didn't really have the outcomes that I expected. So my goal was to go back and figure out how to measure movement using gold standard. So I went and did a degree in quantitative biomechanics and learned how to do motion capture, um, use force plates, do inverse dynamics, joint modeling, calculate internal forces, um, and this kind of stuff. And it kind of, once you understand the process of how to measure movement, uh, understanding the relationship between the internal kinetics, so the, the forces the muscles are making on the inside, versus the external outputs and kinematics and the motions, uh, you understand how complex it actually becomes to infer what's happening at a muscle level just from visual observation. And I think that's where um, a lot of this stuff kind of falls apart, is that a lot of the, the movement screening out there still has no construct validity to date. We actually are not quite sure what it measures. Um, and it's just about understanding that the, the, the eyes as sensors actually aren't very good tools for, for measuring movement. Um, there's a great study by Crosshog and, and his group um, showing that sagittal plane uh, range of motion uh, visually measured can have a plus or minus 15 degree error. Um, you know, we did a, one of my supervisors, Dave Frost, did a study where uh, they took trained and untrained kinesiologists and tried to see um, when they could visualize spinal flexion in a side view of someone picking up a box. And it took about 40 degrees of spinal flexion before everyone trained and untrained agreed that spinal flexion occurred. And that's pretty big variance. Um, you know, 40 degrees before we can pick it up visually is a lot. So um, it kind of, it, it intrigues me because as a coach, the eyes are the sensor we rely on the most, yet how much can we truly rely on them? And it's figuring out, because um, I do truly believe there is something, something inherent that we do see, whether it's pattern recognition, whether it's a coordination thing, I don't really know. But as a coach, I know you can tell when someone's, they're not moving right or something's wrong. But it's just have to be careful when you make the inferences as to what's causing uh, the movement under the hood because there's so many things that could be going on uh, as far as what muscles are producing force. Um, it's more of a dynamical system in that nothing's ever really the same. So, so when it comes to the, like you said, the, the testing of that, how how practical is that within a like a team sport environment? Is there anything that you would take out of that, and and, and maybe that is transferable to that kind of high pressure? Like I need the I need some answers like yesterday <laughs> kind of situation. Yeah, I'd say this is where one of the challenges is because I really don't think the methods of uh, collecting that data right now are practical or realistic for the daily training environment or a practice setting. Um, and that's kind of why uh, I'm, I'm in the sport tech world now is I'm kind of working on some of these things behind the scenes and these are some of the problems we're trying to solve. I do think that we will get there one day, um, but right now it's more about finding uh, what is a surrogate measure, what is a kinematic surrogate, um, 
you know, what, what is something that we can look at that will give us insight into performance or into injury? And the key is, is whatever you're looking at, make sure you relate it back to the performance itself, because really that's what we're trying to affect. Um, so I don't know if that really answers your question. No, no, but, I'm yeah. I like the kinematic surrogate, by the way. I like that term. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that leads me very nicely onto the stuff that you're doing at the minute with push. And we've had guys on who have obviously discussed velocity-based training, Dan, Dan Baker, um, Brian Mann, Mike Young, but that was, well, it seems ages ago now. What, what's from, from, from your point of view, been obviously right in the mix of it in, in the midst of it. What is, what's the future of velocity based training? Where, where's the tech going? Yeah. Well, I think what we're seeing right now is, is a big ramp up in the research because the tech is so readily available now. Um, and it's, it's become, uh, I'd say like a mainstay in, in training paradigms uh, it's added on to the percent rm as a measure of intensity um, you know velocity is being used almost everywhere you go now as a metric of intensity and and training in specificity of velocity um, so you know i'm pretty in touch with a lot of the researchers so we're seeing a lot come out and you're going to see it more towards methodology um, specific training methods and getting more into um, the nitty-gritty of very specific programming. I'd say as far as the tech goes, um, uh, it's getting better and better, especially the accelerometer, gyro-based stuff. You know, it's um, a little behind where the LPT is as far as um, dialing in the numbers, but what it does is it gives you a lot more freedom to do a lot more things. You're not bound to the bar. And I think the direction that we're really going to start to see it heading in is more in the exercise detection where uh, you don't really have to tell it what you're doing anymore and from the the passive signals using machine learning and algorithms um, it'll be able to detect what exercises you're doing um, i think the next kind of frontier that we're starting to see is the application of all this artificial intelligence and machine learning under the hood to do a lot of the the heavy lifting as far as data analysis goes so more on the kind of data science side rather than the better hardware side? Yep. Um, yeah. I mean, I think the next step is, is getting a, away from the point mass models. So like, a, like the catapult, uh, the GPS, or like the push band where it's a single dot in space and coming into a more full 3D model. Um, I, you're definitely going to start to see... Um, things built into clothing more, more link segment modeling, and we can start to get a better picture of actual mechanical workloads and, uh, you know, joint accelerations, decelerations, and maybe some of these things where when we can start to get this data in real time on the field, um, it'll give us better insights into uh, injuries. So um, guys wearing smart apparel on the field, gets an injury, you go back and look at the kinematics leading into that injury. Or you can start to see fatigue in um, the angular velocities during practice. and All these different things where I think it's definitely going to be the next step as far as, um, you know, the tech goes. Mm-hmm. The crazy part of tech is that it's moving so fast that as soon yeah. as something comes out, you know, the next one's going to be out a year later, the next one's going to be out a year later. So it's about 
seeing, uh, you know, where the next frontier is and, and where you're at now and just trying to see what can actually help coaches. Because I think ultimately uh, my frustration with tech and kind of why I'm working with a tech company now is that tech should help the coach. Tech should not make more work for the coach. Um, I was an Excel monkey. I had to type in numbers all the time, and I spent a ton of time doing data analysis. We're definitely getting to the point where the technology can do all that under the hood, and it can just automatically give the answer to the coach so that the coach has more information to make decisions off of and doesn't have to spend a whole bunch of time uh, staring at a computer screen. They can spend more time coaching, which I think is the ultimate goal. How, how close is it to someone wearing a piece of clothing and all this data coming in rather than this, like you say, this, this unit with this one point in time? Uh, I'd say it's definitely very close. Um, okay. You know, I can't say much, but we're working on uh, a prototype for this. Um, and it's, uh, you're going to see it sooner than later. Okay. That's about all nice. I can say about it. No, that's cool. That's fine. That's absolutely fine. So there's, is the, is the new addition to the, the push band with regards to the, the kind of free movement side of things, is that some, somewhere in between the, the two things we spoke about, the, the push band and this kind of smart clothing situation? Um, uh, kind of in a way. I'd say it's more in between in that we're trying to become more unconstrained um, to uh, what you can do with the band. And one of the... You know, one of the, the beauties of being a coach in the art and craft of coaching is that you're only limited by your creativity. You know, there's an infinite amount of lines of force and force vectors we can use as stimulus. Um, and it's whether you're just using mass, elastomers, or air. So by giving the coach the freedom to measure what they want, that was the ultimate inspiration behind free movement. Um, now, being new, we're actually trying to see how coaches are are using it and we're getting a lot of good feedback um, the other side of it is getting one step closer to sport you know ultimately it's the performance we're trying to change and while we try our best to correlate um, gym measures strength measures power measures to that performance you know maybe we can make our testing closer to the performance so um, it's definitely uh, a new feature that is still in its infancy but It'll evolve over time, and I'm excited to see where it is going to go. So is, is machine learning involved in that, so that the more you do it, the more that the tech learns what you're doing? Not right now. So kind of okay. how it works is you, uh, you create your movement. You create a fingerprint, and then okay. from there, um, there's some stuff under the hood happening that figures out what the signal looks like, and then um, you kind of repeat the movement and you compare it to itself so yeah. uh, it's while it may not be uh, the exact velocity say if we put on motion capture um, it's comparing to itself and it's reliable so you know again it's more of a, a field-based uh, testing tool that can get you closer to the sport there but right now no machine learning implemented in that one okay no that's interesting that's excellent so just want to wrap up and firstly thank you for your time um and, and coming on and, and having a chat and but last but not least where can people keep up to date with what you've got going on yeah um you know i'm on twitter chappy strength is a easy way to get a hold of me 
um, or just pay attention to the, the PUSH newsletter, PUSH website. Um, I'll be writing more and more content as far as that goes. And, uh, you know, you'll probably see me around. I'm presenting at uh, my next presentation will be at the U.S. Ski and Snowboard Action and Acrobatic Sports Summit. So, and I'll be heading down to the, the USOC High Performance Summit as well. So I'll probably be running into a lot of people there. Nice. Sounds good. Well, thanks for coming on again, mate, and uh, and we'll certainly keep in touch. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks, mate. Thanks for tuning in to episode 128 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the chat with Chris. So don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on your chosen podcast player, whether it be iTunes, uh, whether you go straight to the source and listen through Podbean. Uh, don't forget to listen to, don't forget to click uh, subscribe so you get all updates when every podcast goes live so one last thanks and that's to coach me plus and Vald performance for sponsoring the episode today so be sure to check them two out got some great guests coming up uh, over the next couple of weeks uh, one in particular who is a part two so another part two coming on um, from the very early days of the podcast so hopefully set some records straight with that one um, and uh, hopefully there's, the, there's plenty to offer in there from various other guests. So thanks again for tuning in. Thanks again for your support and I will speak to you soon.